so this morning, if you want to open your Bible, um, whether your electronic Bible or paper Bible, um, to Matthew chapter 13, we're going to be in just uh, three verses this morning, verses 44 through 46. So let's start with a reading of the verses. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, in his joy, he went, and, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant searching for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. Let's just get a, a sense of time and place. So uh, in, these, in this set of passage, uh, these three verses were, were at the Sea of Galilee and there are eight parables in Matthew chapter 13 and all of them have to do with what's referenced as the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But by, by mystery, uh, we're not talking about um, something that's mysterious like a, like a puzzle to be solved. Instead, the mystery has to do with something that's unknown and has yet to be revealed. And the, the kingdom of heaven is, is used in Matthew's gospel um, while kingdom of God is used in the other gospels. And, and one of the reasons why uh, biblical scholars think that's the case is because Matthew's audience were the Jews. And they had a tradition of not speaking God's name you know, in reference uh, to pretty much anything they said, including God's kingdom. So they would say heaven instead of God. Um, but the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, they basically mean the same thing. One re refers to the ruler and then one refers to the kingdom itself. And so when the Lord Jesus Christ is telling these two parables, he's, he's only talking to his disciples. He actually sent the multitude away. Let me fix this here. He sent the multitude away and, and when he does, he shares four parables with them. Uh, two of which uh, that we're going to study today. So here's the first one. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So this is one of the shortest parables in scripture and, and it's one verse comprised of two sentences and yet it, it tells a lot about the kingdom of heaven. And so let's put ourselves again in the mindset of a first century Jew who's listening to the Lord Jesus Christ tell this parable because Jesus often builds parables based on imagery that people were familiar with. And, and so these folks, they didn't, they didn't have an education like us. Uh, so Jesus had to use things that were known to them and commonplace to them so that they would instantly be able to visualize what he was saying. And in the first century, in, in the ancient world, many people hid their valuables in jars and then they buried those jars in the ground. And, and the reason was that there were so many invaders, um, property could be raided, and the safest thing to do was to, with your treasure, treasures, whether it's gold and precious jewels, is to stick them in the jar, dig a hole, and then bury it. And then you would hope to come back sometime later after the raiders and marauders have, have left. And sometimes, in some instances, people never did come back, and so that treasure was forgotten buried in the ground only to be found maybe years or maybe a century or two later. And obviously there were no banks around at that time so that was really the only place where they could store their valuables where it would be, where they thought it would be safe. So there, there are two interpretations of just this one verse and, and we'll look at both because one isn't more right than the other and one shouldn't take precedence over, over the other. But both interpretations reveal what's spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ. So. So the first interpretation um, 
is that the man is Jesus himself. And the treasure in the field, in the first verse, they, those are potential believers in the world. And this interpretation states that Jesus sees the treasure of souls and he does four things. He, he hides the treasure by taking what God the Father has given him and he hides that treasure in his heart, protecting believers until he can complete the work of salvation. Or Jesus hides the truth of the kingdom from the unbelieving Jews when they rejected him as their Messiah. Then he comes into the world and he sells all by giving up all of his glory in heaven and he buys a treasure by paying the ultimate price through his death on the cross. And his buying the entire field with all that he had is Christ paying the price for all, the Jews and the Gentiles. And he rises on the third day in triumph and in joy. That's the first interpretation. The second interpretation is that the treasure is the gospel of, of Christ. And the man who finds his treasure, um, he represents a person who finds the gospel. And so this man does four things. He, he hides the treasure by safeguarding it in his heart, not, not letting it go, and he, he continues to seek the truth of God's word. And then this man goes by approaching Christ and making a decision to believe and follow in Christ. And then this man sells all that he has, uh, which is seen as repentance and turning from, from his former ways. And finally, the man buys the field, and his giving all for the treasure brings him great joy because he knows that he has hope for everlasting life. So either one of these interpretations is valid based on the context of the parable. Although the second interpretation actually is supported by probably about uh, three quarters of, of the biblical scholars out there. But a semi-blending of these two interpretations might be more appropriate. So let's start with the treasure in the field. So the Lord Jesus Christ is the most valuable treasure anyone can possess. And we always like to think, and I, I want to go to heaven, and, I, and there's, there's this preoccupation with the idea of once I get to heaven, it'll be easier, streets of gold, safety, security. But the, the point of heaven is to be with God. Uh, but no one really says to themselves, when I die and when I get to heaven, I, I don't get to heaven and I actually get God. We tend to focus on heaven as the place and not the kingdom and not the ruler and not the master of that kingdom. And that's, that's, that's our ultimate goal is to get to be with God. So when you get to heaven, you actually get God. So if we look at the field instead as the gospel, then the treasure itself is the Lord Jesus Christ who's hidden in the gospel itself. And it's our responsibility to go through the gospel and learn about Jesus. And to do that, you need to dig deep. You, you can't understand Christ by just scraping off a little soil in that field. You have to take a shovel and you have to dig deep into that ground. And, and this is where we separate the superficial and the genuine people because the superficial ones, they just scratch the surface while the genuine followers, they will dig deep. And so what does this man do when he finds a treasure? The first thing he does is he covers it up. He hides it, um, not physically, but puts that treasure into his heart and into his mind. And he protects that treasure from being stolen by bandits and raiders and the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms, the, the enemies that John spoke about last week on his lesson on... on um, Ephesians and spiritual warfare. And the next thing Jesus tells us is that this man goes. And this is seen as the man approaching Christ and he makes a decision. 
And this is, a, this is the invitation that the Lord Jesus Christ gives to all people who come to him and to seek his mercy. But this also means that a decision actually has to be made by the person who finds a treasure. And so after the man goes and he makes a decision, we're told that he sells. And this is interpreted as repentance. This is interpreted as turning away from our old life and turning towards God. And not only that, but he's willing to give up everything and deny himself everything. From his personal desires to his love for things and his love for, for title and his, and his love for position and, and his lust for material possessions and his, and his lust for power. All these things are, are meaningless compared to possessing God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So he goes from a life of self-love and self-gratification and self-aggrandizement to a life of self-denial, a life of discipline, uh, because it takes a lot of discipline to count all of those things as nothing compared to Christ. So he's willing to give all that he is to God. And after he sells all that he has, he buys. And, and this doesn't mean that salvation can be bought. Uh, what this is interpreted as is the man committing all that he can to take hold of and possess the promise of salvation through Christ. He knows that getting a hold of Christ is worth everything he has. And finally, the Lord Jesus Christ says, this man is full of joy. He's full of joy because he experiences the completeness that is found in the knowledge and in the security of eternal and abundant life in the world to come. And this, this joy is also known as is also part of the fruit of the Spirit, which we find in Galatians chapter 5, uh, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He experiences all, all of these things and he will display eventually all of these characteristics as the Holy Spirit molds and shapes him to be an image bearer of God. And if, if, if we want to sum up in three words how to describe this parable, it's discovery, it's response, and it's commitment. The, the finding of the kingdom of heaven demands a response and that response, if positive, demands total obedience and total commitment. And you'll notice, too, that the treasure is basically hidden in a field that clearly others have passed through, and yet they didn't find it. So the kingdom of heaven is also present, and yet it's not found or not perceived by others, even though it's there in the field. So that's the first parable. The second one is similar. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all he had and bought it. So the word merchant here is the Greek word emporos, uh, which literally translates into passenger, as in someone who is traveling by sea. And think of someone who deals in wholesale instead of someone who owns a shop. This is the supplier who deals and, and trades on a large scale. And, and this, this merchant is seeking pearls, and the word for seeking is zeteo. That's the original Greek, which means that this merchant is making what he's looking for the highest priority. Nothing else is a higher priority than what he's looking for. And he's on a quest. And that pearl is the sole reason for his quest. And first century Jews, when, when, they, when they heard this parable, they understood just how valuable pearls were. Like a, a pearl diver could lose their life going in search for pearls. And in, in the ancient what they did they tied rocks to themselves so that they could sink and then they had to hold their breath and then who knows how long they were down there who knows what kind of 
creatures were, were, were in the water. There could have been sharks down there. And also, the ancient Egyptians worshipped pearls and the Romans adopted that worship, uh, especially the Roman women. When, when, they wanted to, when the Roman women wanted to show off, um, what, they, what they did was they put pearls in their hair. And it's said, too, that Roman emperors, when they wanted to show just how wealthy they were, they'd take pearls and they would dissolve them in vinegar and then they'd drink it. That's how valuable, that's how common pearls were for them. And that was what they were worth. It's worth swallowing, I guess. So just like our first parable, this one is interpreted in two different ways. And the split amongst the biblical scholars as well is about the same as the first one. Um, but either interpretation will fit into the theme of what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying. So some say that the merchant is Jesus himself. And the pearl uh, of great price is the body of believers, the church. And Jesus gives all that he has, his very life, his blood, to buy that pearl. And others say that the merchant is a person who is seeking some type of spirituality, that they, they find one pearl of amazing value, and that pearl is Jesus. And Jesus is worth everything this mer uh, to this merchant. It's worth every he's worth everything giving up for. And this, so this merchant sells all that he has to possess this one pearl because it's the one thing that he's been seeking for on his quest. And, and in the ancient world, pearls were actually considered a symbol of truth and life. And so this merchant... And from, to the first century Jews hearing this parable, this merchant, their, uh, their understanding is that he's seeking after truth. And when he discovers the truth of God's word and the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, he does the same thing as a man who finds a treasure in the first parable. He goes and he sells and he buys this one pearl. So regardless of how you see the pearl, the basic points are the same. The man seeks something that's priceless and then he finds it. And then digging deeper, um, some of you probably know that uh, the pearl is obviously found in an oyster, but the pearl isn't actually a product of suffering. So you get a, a little irritant, um, like a bit of sand or a parasite or a tiny pebble, and what the, pearl, uh, what the oyster does it, it, is it, this causes the, the oyster discomfort, and so it starts to secrete um, a substance called nacre. Uh, or sometimes it's referred to as mother of pearl. And over months and even over years, it surrounds that little irritant with layer after layer of nacre until it, uh, it creates a pearl and it surrounds that, that invader. And you can see the analogy here that our salvation came through this, the, the sacrifice and pain of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as believers, our faith cannot grow without struggle or without suffering. And, and we can also see here an analogy with the blood of Christ and how it covers over our transgressions. And if we allow the Holy Spirit to mold us and transform us, we too can become a beauty to behold, just like the pearl. And that comes through the Holy Spirit's discipline in our lives. So the other thing this parable tells us is this man was actively looking for pearls. This means that uh, as a merchant, he was traveling from place to place. He was looking for something. And the Jews of that time didn't actually think that pearls were really anything of value. So the word pearl is only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. It's mentioned in Job 28 and the first chapter of Esther. And in Esther, it's in reference actually to mother of pearl, which is the maker at the banquet of King Azahueros, who, who, was, who was Persian, he wasn't Hebrew. 
And yet the Lord Jesus Christ uses this reference. So to a Jew of this time when pearls were mentioned, more than likely they knew he was referring to the Gentile world because these were prized by the Gentiles. So if you interpret the merchant as the Lord Jesus Christ, then this is him leaving heaven to seek and save the lost, in particular the Gentiles. If you've interpreted the merchant as a person, perhaps as a Gentile, seeking meaning in their lives, and this is a person, a Gentile on a spiritual journey, seeking a spiritual path and seeking spiritual meaning. And as it was then, so it is now, people are, are seeking meaning in their lives. Uh, some dive into philosophical studies, others look to science to reveal the mysteries of life, others seek meaning through money or fame or social media, and still others give into a creative side or where they produce art. And uh, unfortunately, others even seek self-medication through drugs or alcohol or whatever they can find on the internet. But this man appears to have tried many of those things in search of, for that one pearl. And it's not until he finds the word of God and finds the gospel of Jesus Christ that he realizes that Jesus is the great pearl that he's been looking for. And Jesus is worth more than anything you can ever gain in this life. We know that as, as, as followers of Christ. But there's also a caution implied here as well. So we're told that the merchant is seeking fine pearls. Other translations will say goodly pearls or good pearls. Uh, so this merchant isn't looking for fake pearls. He's looking for the real thing. And, and the merchant, obviously, is an expert in pearls. He, he knows what counterfeit looks like, which is why he's looking for good and authentic pearls. And modern technology has advanced enough that someone can take calcium carbonate, which is what pearls are mostly made of, and they can create a fake pearl. And to our eyes, who aren't experts, we, we might not be able to tell the difference, but the merchant can. And so, too, it's possible for the merchant to be able to spot authentic or fake Christianity, whether it be in the form of a church body or be in the form of an individual person. Both the real pearl and the fake pearl will look the same on the outside. And actually, I, th this is interesting, um, maybe some of you know this, the best test to know if you have a, an actual pearl is to actually rub it on your tooth. And if it's very smooth, interestingly enough, if it's very smooth, that's actually fake. And if it catches on your teeth and feels rough, that's actually the real pearl. We like to think it's the opposite, um, with a real pearl feeling smooth, but that's actually not, not true. And th so this brings us to our first lesson point. The kingdom of heaven is an acquired treasure, not an inheritance or an heirloom. So the men in the two parables come across the treasure in different ways. One comes across it accidentally. The other one is actually looking for it. And neither one of them was gifted this treasure or this pearl. So the first man didn't receive a plot of land from a distant relative, and the other man didn't receive a valuable pearl, the most valuable pearl in creation, because it was willed to him in, in someone's last will and testament. They both found it on their own. And we've all given into the notion at certain points in our lives that those who came before us did these things in church that we all, and that all we have to do is follow in their footsteps. Well, my parents went to mass every, every Sunday and I had learned, uh, had my first communion, for those of you who may have a Catholic background. Um, or my parents told me that I needed to go to church on Sunday and I haven't mi missed a day so I'm saved. That doesn't save anyone from anything uh, other than perhaps having disappointed parents. 
the kingdom of heaven, as we've seen through the example of these two men, is something that a person has to acquire on their own. This means that you have to go out and you actually have to get it. It's not going to be handed to you. You have to go after it. And once you found it, it's still not over. Because like the first parable, you have to dig deep into God's word. And if you settle for a superficial form of Christianity, you will become only what you behold. And a superficial form of Christianity is not true belief. And it leads to a fragile belief in Christ, a, a belief that can be shaken at any time. Um, superficial Christianity is probably like using a dating app. The person's profile is not going to be who you meet. And some people who've used that probably have buyer's remorse because that is not what they're looking for. God wants our belief in him to be like it's written in Jeremiah chapter 7. Um, they will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots into the stream. So deep down and it does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. And this leads us into our second lesson point. The kingdom of heaven brought these men joy. So if a person's faith is superficial, then when the emotional high wears off, when they realize how much of a commitment it's going to take to follow Christ, the joy disappears. And all of us without exception in this room and, and whoever's watching online, we have burdens today more than we have before. At, at, at no time in recent history has the, the threat of, of another world war loomed so large. And, and even without those worries, there's worries about finances, there's worries about rising grocery prices, or, or we worry about our health. And how can any of that bring any of us joy? Well, true, vo true joy is found in knowing that we've found the kingdom of heaven, whether we've found it in the field or whether we've been searching for that, for that one pearl. And we, we still have to live on this planet and with, with all of its difficulties, but if, if you're letting the Holy Spirit mold your faith, then you can get through the hardships and be joyful when the hardships have passed. And this brings us to our third lesson point. The kingdom of heaven is acquired through sacrifice and struggle. Because a real pearl is made through sacrifice and struggle. And when a pearl is harvested from, from an oyster, the oyster actually dies. The oyster spends all of these years secreting that, that substance to cover the irritant and in the end it dies when someone pries it open. And, and the pearl that, that it produces in the end, the pearl that we are asked to produce, that we're responsible for producing in the end is a testament to the condition of our faith. Whether the pearl is a church or whether the pearl is Christ, the pearl grows gradually. And the, the, just like the church grows slowly and a, and a Christian's faith is molded daily by the Holy Spirit to make that person more like Christ. The church grows through struggles, and so do we. The Lord Jesus Christ struggled on that long, lonely walk to Calvary, and his suffering on the cross made a way for all who believe in him to find that treasure. And so faith takes discipline in order to keep us on course and to stop us from either straying or straying too far. And as John mentioned in his lesson last week on, on our spiritual battles, the devil is just waiting to pull us off course or, or to distract us with fears of the future. Satan would like us to think that the price we have to pay for the kingdom of heaven is too heavy a price, and perhaps for some people it is. But you don't buy your way into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus already paid for your way into the kingdom of heaven. You have to accept him. You have to follow him. You have to believe that he is God.
And, and so we have, like these men, maybe before they found the treasure or the pearl, they, we have many things in our lives that we don't want to give up. We have, we're always aiming for that promotion at work, or perhaps we're not realizing that it takes you away from whatever time you have with God or with family. And there, there are people who love their, their job so much that they'll skip church because they say that work needs them or and they use that as an excuse whenever people in church ask them, uh, where, where have you been? Where have you been? Because that job makes them feel special. And, and how many of us have been so obsessed with a hobby in the past that we made it consistent practice to focus on that instead of spending time in God's word? And so to our relationships, how many of us have obsessed over that man or over that woman to the point where God takes a back seat in the relationship? And if you eventually get married, how long is that going to last? Or, or those actually who've been in ministry, how often have we seen a minister fall because of their obsession with their ministry and then they end up losing it because the focus is on them and not on turning the focus to God. Spending time with God will never make you famous in the world's eyes. But it will save your life in, in eternity if you're willing to fellowship with God and follow in his footsteps. And this brings us to our final lesson point. The kingdom of heaven is salvation. So the kingdom of heaven ultimately represents the saving knowledge that God the Father sent his only begotten son to give his life as a ransom for you, a ransom for me, to pay the price for our sins so that we can once again fellowship with God in heaven. And one of these men again found the kingdom of heaven by accident and one was looking for it. And, and knowing that the kingdom of heaven represents salvation, we have to respond as the men in the parable responded, the, the two parables responded. Because the point of both parables is what these two men do once they've found the kingdom of heaven. They actually, they give up everything they own, to, to everything they have to own what they found. And they also recognize the value of what they found. It was worth selling everything they owned. And they did just that because the treasure was worth it. The, the kingdom of heaven is worth it. Jesus is worth it. And so this leads us to our first question. Is Jesus Christ your treasure? So that's a question that John Piper actually asks often after he published his book, Don't Waste Your Life. Uh, if Jesus is not your treasure, then you have too many other treasures in your life that you value. And none of those treasures compares to Christ. And none of those treasures will get you to heaven. Jesus is the one true God, just like God the Father, Yahweh God, is the one true God. If someone saved your life and, and rushed into a burning building and saved your life and, and dragged you out, you would treasure that person for the rest of your life. But if he just saves your soul, then the rest of the world seems to think that he's not really that big of a deal. And the fact that he's the one and only true Savior means that Jesus is a treasure beyond imagination. He's the only one who can save any human being from their sins. He's the only one in human history who was sinless. He's the only one who could satisfy the wrath of a, of a, of a righteous God. And he's the only one who ever rose from the dead. And so that leads us to our second question. Is Jesus worth giving up everything for? And to answer this question, we have to remember the, the, the mindset of the first century Jewish, Jew, Jews who were listening to this parable. They didn't have a lot of things that we do. We in North America, we're probably richer than 90% than of, of, the, of the world, but 
to the first century Jews hearing this, they understood that Jesus was more important than anything else. Peter himself says, we left everything to follow you. They left homes, they left families behind to follow Jesus. And, and to us today, this question means, is Jesus more important than anything you possess? Is he worth giving up your social calendar to be with him and study his word on your own or with your family? Is he worth giving up that hobby that has you hiding in the basement while everyone else is wondering where you are? And if, if you've actually seen the sun in the past few days because you're so obsessed with whatever you're doing down there in, in your man cave. Uh, is he worth giving up that worldly reputation that you have? The, the popularity that you have, the, the, those bragging rights that you have. Is he, is, he, is he worth the world seeing you as really not that special at all? Because if people see you, if, if you draw the attention to yourself while only giving superficial lip service to Jesus, then you haven't actually given up what you have to give up to follow him. And if people are only seeing a superficial faith, then this brings up our final question. Is your faith authentic or is your faith synthetic? This thing that we call faith, we have to be careful with it. It, it, it needs to be nurtured. Um, through the study of God's word in church and through personal study or group study, there, there, there are so many people today in, in, in all the Christian churches who can't even navigate their Bibles or, or, or barely crack it open. And, and on the flip side, uh, a well-worn Bible doesn't act, isn't actually an indication of solid faith either. For those who are still young in their Christian life, you're, you're like Audrey, your, your journey is, is just beginning. And as the Holy Spirit begins to work on you more uh, and turn you into more like Christ uh, so that you reflect his character, it's, it's the best analogy is the struggle is going to be like dragging a suitcase with a broken wheel across the airport terminal. And there's people in your way and suddenly you realize you're at one end of the terminal and you've got a long way to go dragging a 50-pound suitcase across the floor to the check-in counter. That's the struggle for the young Christian. But it's also the struggle for, the, for those who have been Christians for a long time. Um, and for those who have, for those who've been Christians for years and years, now is not the time to be complacent. Uh, the devil and his fallen angels and his demons would love to target someone who thinks that years of being, of, of bearing the label of Christian means solid faith. And older Christians get lulled into this false sense of security at times, thinking that as the years add up, it means you got it made, that you, you can coast on by, that your salvation is secure because of the years. But it's not the years, it's the mileage. And there's much more growing to do, regardless of whether you're a new Christian or whether you've been a Christian for a long time. And so the Holy Spirit points us to Christ, to Jesus' character, and the Holy Spirit reminds us of Jesus' saving work on the cross. So as brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to listen to the Holy Spirit, uh, whether he's encouraging us to take the high moral ground when everyone else is cheating or everyone else is gossiping or they're watching something or doing things that they shouldn't or whether the Holy Spirit is reminding you that you crossed that line, that you may have sinned that day, that, that you need to be ashamed of what you did and that you need to repent and turn back to God. And so listen to the Holy Spirit and he'll show you that the kingdom of heaven is real 
and that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, nothing compares to its worth. Nothing compares to the Lord Jesus Christ. So make seeking the kingdom of heaven your priority today. I just wanted to remind you of something else written in Matthew, just to reinforce this, or maybe not. I may have left that last slide out, sorry, but it's just Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, from the King James Version. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. So as you go about today, wherever you're going to go today, and wherever you go from this day forward, remember who your treasure is as Christians. Remember what you've given up. Um, remember not just what you've given up, but maybe there's something else. Maybe there are more things that you need to give up today that are standing between you and between the kingdom of heaven. And most importantly, Christians really should do this every single day. You really need to test your faith. Test it daily when you wake up and ask, is this really genuine or, genuine or am I going through the motions? Because that, that is a, another litmus test of Christians, whether it's we're just Christians on the surface or where, whether we dug deep and we still have deeper to go.